1: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: As Brexit soured the prospect of investing in wine? And with interest rates predicted to move down a notch, what's the outlook for savers? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you the week's money news in downloadable form. One of the biggest personal finance stories this year has been the plight of investors trapped in open-ended property funds, which over recent weeks have, one by one, temporarily gated withdrawals for investors following huge demand to sell down units in the wake of the Brexit vote. Our guest columnist this week, Paul Killick, founder of Wealth Manager Killick & Co, joins me on the line now to explain what's happening to open-ended property funds has raised his concerns about bond funds targeted at private investors. Paul, welcome to The Money Show. Thank you. Firstly, explain to us, what exactly is a bond fund?
1: Well, probably we should go back a step up from that, what is a bond? A bond is a fixed income security that is tradable, that generally issued by governments and corporates, that have essentially three characteristics. One is obviously who the issuer is if it's a government at one level that's about the highest security you can get if it's a small company mid-cap in the London market or something that is at the lower level and there's many levels between so that's the credit one of the three conditions the next is the coupon the rate of interest that they're proposing to pay that's the bit that investors like that's the bit the investors like absolutely right and then finally is the ultimate redemption date and that's the date when you get your money back and depending on the quality of the credit you expect to get your interest through the term of the loan, and you expect to get your money back at the end of the period. And those are the three essential characteristics. Now, a bond fund is a collective investment scheme mm. that acts on behalf of investors to give them a portfolio of bonds, and the theory is absolutely logical. However, when you put bonds into a collective investment scheme, an open-ended collective investment scheme of the type that we're talking about here as a bond fund, then they lose those essential characteristics. They just become a higher-yielding collective investment scheme, and you've lost the sight of who the underlying credits are, the coupon that they pay, which is rather less important within a collective in that sense, because you'll get the income anyway. But And then the ultimate redemption date, which for me, I think is one of the most important characteristics of a bond, that you know that you're going to get your money back on the assumption that the business is still trading and profitable at the end of the term. Now, that unfortunately is lost within a bond fund. And my concern is that we've gone through now what is effectively a 20-year-plus um, bull market in bonds since mm. 1994, when the bond market started this, this bull run, that um, we must be coming fairly close to the, to the close of this market, given that yields really cannot go much lower. You know, we've got huge amounts of, uh, of debt around the world that's already providing negative interest rates. So it's a time that really we ought to think about how the very significant sums of money that have found their way into bond funds over the last... Six years, particularly as rates have been at these sort of levels, can be carefully exited. Normally, if you were holding a fixed income security, you'd be looking at the ultimate redemption date and saying, fine, you know, if the market's coming off a bit, I'm not too worried. You know, it's a Unilever bond or it's a British government guild or something like that. I'm not worried about it. I'll get my money back in time. There's a natural end that's right that's right but unfortunately that characteristic has disappeared you simply in an open-ended fund where the value will start to decline as bond prices go down in value and consequently the yields go up as we reverse out of this period of, of very very low interest rates which has to happen at some particular point at some point in the future
2: well, very clearly explained now Talk us through what's happened to open-ended property funds and why you think these open-ended bond funds share similar characteristics.
1: Well, it's about the liquidity of an underlying investment. The strength, but also the weakness of the open-ended concept, which is a collective investment scheme that can continue just taking in investors and investing the monies. It's always very easy to invest monies. It's not always as easy to exit out of investments. And Mm -hmm. so if you're in an open-ended scheme where someone believes they have the right Come along tomorrow and say, I wish to sell it. Will you please send me my money back? You've got to have liquid underlying investments. I think the failure of who put these schemes together is that they haven't looked at the underlying liquidity. And fine, as long as markets are moving forward and advancing and, and confidence is there. But when you get, as we did last week, a shake in confidence on the back of the whole Brexit thing, then the illiquidity of property suddenly comes to the fore. When people say, Oh, I'd like my money back, please. I'm not too comfortable holding a property uh, unit trust at the moment. And suddenly, of course, you've got the issue of the illiquidity of the underlying investment. It cannot be just sold in a space of 24 hours in order to return the money to people in the manner that they believe that they should be entitled to expect. So that's the essential principle. It's got to ensure that what the underlying investment within a daily traded or even a weekly traded fund has got to be reasonably liquid. Now, the liquidity has been accommodated in the bond market as we had the growth of the bond market over the last five, six years particularly. And there's been more and more issuance of paper by corporations and governments in order to soak up this demand and give people a bit of certainty about income. However, my concern is who is going to be the buyer of that paper when people say, thank you very much, it's been a very nice journey, I've done me very well, but actually now I'd like to have my money back, please.
2: Mm. Well, thanks very much there to Paul Killick. You can read his full column in FT Money this weekend as part of the Weekend FT, or read it online now at ft.com slash money. Next, we turn our attention to more liquid investments. <laughs> Investing in wine has had one big advantage for private investors. If it all goes wrong, at least you can drink your assets. But the wine market, just like the stock market, is subject to an array of global pressures, and its performance as an asset class over recent years has left more of a bad taste in the mouth for investors than a rosy glow. I'm joined in the FT studio by Alan Livesey, FT Lex writer, who's written our cover feature on this issue this week. Alan, welcome to The Money Show. Hello. You're a wine lover and a seasoned investment writer on the Lex team, and lucky FT money, you've combined your passions this week to write about the state of the wine investment market for us give us a broad flavor of what's been happening at the top end of the market
3: Well, it's been an interesting year, certainly, but let's go back a bit and talk a little bit about the history. First of all, as an overview, the Bordeaux fine wine market, these are the higher priced ones, the better ones, encompasses a lot of more expensive wine, and it is a big part of the, say, UK wine trade. Mm. And it's important to France's economy. It's 15% of the wine produced in France is coming from Bordeaux. It's a major, major region. Now, in the run-up to the middle, say 2009, 2010, there had been more and more interest in the wine market from the Far East. Yes. So the Chinese, greater China, both in Hong Kong and the mainland, which had taken up, say, maybe a quarter of Bordeaux's fine wine in value terms, say 10 years ago. By last year, that was 50%. So it's become very, very important. So we had a push of Chinese interest into the wine market from the early part of last decade. At the same time, in 2009 and 2010, there were two particularly good vintages for Bordeaux. So the two came together, along with interest from uh, the U.S., and we saw wine prices going up quite a bit, to the point where in 2010, essentially, it's fair to say we had a bit of a bubble going on. A wine bubble. Bubble. (laughs) Now, the way wine, at least in Bordeaux, amongst the best wines, they're offered in an on-premier market, a sort of early futures market is probably the best way to put it. And that's really done in Bordeaux in order to give the Chateau a chance to sell their wines early and get some idea of allocation. Before they're even in the bottle. Before they're in the bottle.
2: Tasting it from the barrel, predicting how it's going to be. Exactly. So that puts a lot of pressure
3: on the reviewers. And the reviewers will put out their take of view. Those reviews come out and you can understand how in a buzzing market things can get overheated. The imprimer market kind of broke in 2011 because there had been a lot of demand in 2010 for these early vintages, essentially early auctions. And when 2011 and 2012 vintages and 13 were not so good, mm. and we saw the bubble burst a little bit. So wine prices have essentially been coming down from Bordeaux. Not everywhere. You know, Burgundy and other fine wines in other parts of the world haven't done so badly. But this is an important part of the market, it can be for certainly for uk trade 60 70 80% of yeah, their of the, their fine the back wine backbone. business it yeah. is the backbone so wine prices were in a bit of a bear market and and that's when we come into this year we got to the on premier market of 2015
2: in the springtime in the
3: springtime the reviews were pretty good they were actually the best reviews from wine writers since the 2010s there was a bit of excitement building up and then the big surprise was that oh, the Chateau, the fine wine Chateau in Bordeaux, raised prices much more than expected. Probably around, on average, around 50% over the previous year. And that was much more than expected. It was more than double the, the, in terms of percentages. And in some cases, they raised them by 100%. That's this year. That's this yeah. year. So we had that slight hiccup, and if you pardon the pun. And then a disappointing on-premier season for some of the trade. And then Brexit hit.
2: Now, what's that meant for UK investors? Well, it's
3: interesting because in terms of the immediate effect was what happened to the pound. As I said, UK is the number three fine wine market for Bordeaux Mm. uh, after greater China and the US. And there is a lot of wine that's bought here in pounds and stored here in pounds, right? So when the pound went down, there was an arbitrage that became available and overseas investors immediately started calling to adjust that price. And they started looking around for things. And you can see prices moved with sterling in the week or two after the Brexit vote. So that's been exciting, I guess, for the trade. Far Vinters, one of the big traders here, said that June was their best month in years, since probably four or five years. So that's been good for the market.
2: But so. for domestic UK wine investors...
3: It's probably not so good because eventually, some of this, if you're selling, okay. But if you're looking to replace stock or even just want to buy wine to have a uh, drink, well, it's all going to start going up in price pretty soon. So it's an interesting time. So there's a lot of buzz, there's a lot of activity, but at some point, we're going to see prices going up.
2: Certainly. And if you read Alan's full article in FC Money this weekend, he speaks to wine traders and talks about areas of the market other than on-premise where investors can target to make a healthy profit. Well, Alan, cheers. Thanks for joining us today. We'll have a glass of wine later. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, by the time you listen to this podcast, we will probably know what's happened to UK interest rates. 18 years ago, interest rates were 7.5% and some long-term savings accounts paid as much as 10%. That level of interest was enough for anyone who had substantial bank savings to pay a child's university living costs or fund their own day-to-day needs in retirement. Imagine that today, when the average high street savings account pays you a measly 0.64% and you only get 2.6% for locking your money up for five whole years. This could get worse on Thursday, which is when the majority of economists believe the Bank of England's rate-setting committee will cut rates again. The prediction is to 0.25%. I'm joined by Naomi Rovnik, our digital editor, who has been writing about savings rates this week. Naomi, welcome to The Money Show. Hi. So why are the banks being so stingy? Do they not need our deposits?
0: They don't. You would think of banking as you put the deposits in and the bank uses that money to lend on takes a margin on it but while deposits are one method of funding banks can also borrow from each other. It's easy to do this at the moment because central banks everywhere are pumping money into financial systems so money available on this wholesale or swaps market is pretty cheap. A building society is still quite likely to be funded primarily by your deposits and they offer slightly better rates for this reason so the Nottingham and West Bromwich Building Societies are paying around 1.2% on instant access accounts. That compares to 0.05% <laughs> for HSBC's Flexible Saver. So don't stick with the bank. You have a current account with Do Shop Around. Even the new challenger banks, such as Shawbrook, do not have to chase your deposits so much these days. Now, some lesser-known banks are paying higher rates, as you found out in your article this week, but do they have higher risks? Well, often topping the Best Buy tables these days are Sharia-compliant accounts paid by Islamic banks who are themselves based in the UK. They don't pay interest exactly, as this is not allowed under Sharia law, but they pay a rate that reflects a share of their anticipated profit. The risk is that these profit shares will fluctuate, so your interest rate isn't fixed. And what about European banks? Some
2: of these are paying relatively high rates, but are Savers deposits still protected?
0: We have a pretty bizarre situation where, um, for example, Renault, the French car maker, has launched a UK savings bank um, and Swedish bank Karno is often topping best buy tables. But remember, a European bank's deposits are not guaranteed by the UK Financial Services Compensation Fund, that our kind of deposits lifeboat that protects our deposits in UK banks up to £75,000.
2: And do some international banks have UK licences so that they are covered by those FSCS rules?
0: They do. And this goes back to Save. So back in 2007, you know, this bank's Icelandic parent collapsed. It was paying very high interest rates. UK Savers had about six billion in, the, in deposits in Ice Save, but Iceland's own foreign <laughs> foreign exchange reserves were only about two billion. So there was no way that Iceland could bail you out. So the government, when Landsbanki collapsed, the British government had to chase poor little Iceland for all this money and pay Ice Save Savers' compensation out of its own coffers. So an international bank coming here doesn't want to be tarred with the Ice Save brush. For example, Bank of Cyprus, which is a Cypriot bank, has launched a UK bank with a UK licence so that it's covered by FSCS.
2: Good well lots to look at there you can read Naomi's full feature on ftmoney.com thank you very much for joining us on the money show this week we'd love to know what you think about bond funds investing in wine paltry savings rates or money matters more generally you can get in touch with us via email our address money at ft.com tweet us at ftmoney or comment on articles online at ft.com slash money There's just time to tell you what else will feature in this weekend's issue. We will have full analysis of the Bank of England's interest rate decision, and my serious money column examines the next challenge for investors, rising inflation. Plus, we have the latest share tips and director's deals from the Investors Chronicle. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me and our studio guests. Goodbye.
0: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our FT News podcasts which focus on one of the main issues of the day and bring you the insights and expertise of our global network of journalists as well as outside contributors you can download these at ft.com/podcasts most days of the week
1: flexibility is great that's why there's yoga
0: flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans